Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Hello, and welcome to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Today, on a very special episode of the CISO's Gambit, I am honored and pleased to have David Liska join us. David Liska is the Associate Director of Engineering and Technology at the Space Telescope Science Institute. You may know the Space Telescope Science Institute from their most recent successful project, the launch of the James Webb Telescope. David is part of the leadership driving the engineering and technical talent across the Institute, overseeing many of the divisions, including science operations, engineering, systems engineering, integration, testing, operations, data management, just to name a handful of the things he oversees. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure's all mine. I'm very happy to be here. So David, you know, one of the things that all of us on the outside, really kind of looking up or really looking down, depending on which device we're consuming the images coming back from the telescope is the amazingness of not only how we as a species have continued to evolve from a technology perspective, but seeing and getting a better grasp, which is still a fractional grasp of the entirety of our universe and and what it means to exist within this massive tapestry that we call life. And a lot of this from the project, I think has really captured the imagination. And I believe I've heard this even amongst friends that have small kids getting excited about this idea of continued space exploration, whether it's what we're seeing in the commercial space, but even in the academic and the research space as what's being done with the James Webb. Since you've been involved with this creation and this achievement, which is really pushing forward our understanding of how we exist within this massive universe. Could you give us an overview what your role has been in helping support this great achievement? Thanks, John. That's actually, that's a great question. So yeah, just a little bit about the Space Telescope Science Institute and just why I'll, I'll either refer to it as Space Telescope or the Institute. It's the exact same thing. We were originally established in the 1980s in preparation for the 1990 launch of the Hubble Telescope. And Hubble Telescope, 32 years on, still going strong, still producing just simply groundbreaking new discoveries. And so over those decades, the, the, you know, the Hubble technology has been still just absolutely amazing. And then as we look forward into the future, we're looking with now with the James Webb Space Telescope. And one thing to sort of clear up, and you hear this quite often, is that the James Webb is the successor to the Hubble. And it, it really actually, they're very complementary. They work on different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, there are some things that Hubble is much better at, and there's other things that the James Webb is much better at. But specifically on the, the James Webb, where you describe my role, which is you know what I do at the Institute, but this is really the effort reflecting the work of a, you know over a thousand people in 17 different countries. And in my role in this, which is a, is a leadership role, um, I think as you know in, in leadership you really have to kind of evaluate yourself differently. You know you have a team that is 
trying to climb a mountain and it is your is your job to make sure that they have the skills that they need uh, the environment they need the tools they need to actually climb that mountain and quite often that mountain has boulders on it and some require detours and some are just immovable and and sometimes i really sort of feel like my job is just is moving boulders and then when your teams make it to the top you know, what was your contribution in that? And the simple fact is they're the ones that, that did the work. Uh, they're the ones who made that happen. And and that's what I actually enjoy most about my role in all of this is that just being there and helping the teams uh, be the best that they can be. And then as, uh, as far as the Institute goes, um, you know, more broadly, my responsibility, my role has been able to make sure that the Space Telescope Science Institute, it has the the tools, the, the people, the processes, the skills, the infrastructure to create the products and applications and data and everything that's really necessary to make the Hubble and the James Webb truly productive science instruments. So David, with that scope of responsibility, I'm, I'm really curious because I personally have a very difficult time fathoming the complexity associated with not just some of the systems that are involved, but the complexity in managing not only a incredibly visible deadline for achieving the launch and the engineering work that goes in, plus obviously all the, the research that goes in many years in advance to achieve this. From your perspective, and if I recall, your your background includes a very diverse set of experiences across publicly traded companies, large publicly traded companies, to academia, mm-hmm. working in top secret clearance environments, and then obviously most recently here at the at the Institute. How have you found your experiences both as a technologist and as a senior executive? How have these really influenced both your approach towards supporting the mission of the Institute and helping ensure that everyone part of the mission has what they need from both a technological standpoint, a security standpoint, integrity standpoint, and obviously availability, I would imagine, is a huge component of what is within your purview. There's a lot to unpack on that one. So just just an aside on the availability one. When I first got uh, to the Institute, this is, this is a term a lot of people use in other organizations, but I was referring to certain things as mission critical. And there was a colleague, her name was Vera, who pulled me aside very quickly and said, Dave, that you know that term does not mean what you think it means and you really had to sort of recalibrate what mission critical really means because we actually have missions and mission critical is very important but to kind of look at your question from one perspective sort of on kind of working through the different types of organizations both in terms of their structures but also their specific industries i've worked in epidemiology biotech social policy national defense higher education and and now astronomy and this is just general uh, the listeners of this podcast are obviously technically oriented and some may be early career and some more advanced. But just the, the greatest thing about working in these fields as we do is that you can go to almost any industry in any type of organization and, and contribute. And I can't imagine doing anything else as a result. The other way to sort of answer your question is looking at what are different types of organizations like in terms of, let's say, commercial versus nonprofit versus academic. And that's a, a pretty big adjustment. And 
the biggest challenge that I've seen is sort of going from a corporate environment to a nonprofit slash academic environment. And, uh, and, and what you really have to do is you have to recalibrate uh, your perspective. What I've found in for-profit, they tend to be more hierarchical. They, they tend to move faster. Demands are tighter. But then when you go into you know an organization like mine, which is and this is less so because we've doubled in size in recent years. But when I first got here, we were incredibly consensus-driven. And and being a leader, manager, and, and especially because one of my roles here at Space Telescope is the CISO. So I currently fill the CIO, CTO, and CISO roles, is um, is the ability to get through very difficult projects that uh, – people aren't necessarily going to fully understand right away or maybe resistant to. And so uh, trying to work those through in a consensus environment is probably one of the greatest things that I've learned uh, in this organization. But to take, again, and to, to kind of take a third take on your on your question, one of the greatest things that I learned before this organization that helped me survive um, the transition into a more consensus-based and academic organization is what I call the toolbox metaphor. And no matter what your role, whether you're a direct contributor or management or leadership or, or pretty much any, anywhere in the organization, over the years and your different places that you work and the different projects you work on, the different people, you develop this toolbox of skills, approaches, processes, knowledge. It is really sort of the, the culmination of your, of your value. And I had a situation where I, I Came into an or came into a new organization, and I kept hearing on everybody I talked to as I was kind of doing a listening tour. I kept hearing about my predecessor, and and they they kept mentioning this individual by name over and over and over again. And so I said, well, let me let me f- ask a little more. And I said, you know, what is it that this person specifically did? Because everybody's really kind of upset, and it was ever still a very strong experience. And as I'm writing these down, I realized that these were right out of the CIO playbook, you know, that, that you sort of come in and you come in and you look, what do I standardize? Where do I cut costs? Where do I do this? And, and they started executing on the CIO uh, playbook and checklist. And what that taught me, and, and this is something that this is probably the most, one of the most valuable career experiences that, is, that I've had is when you go into a new organization, very much resist the need to create or to produce a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And the reason being, in in my case, when I looked at it, I was like, all right, I have to come in and I cannot use a playbook. I cannot actually use my toolbox. And instead, look at the culture of the organization, look at what their priorities are, what their deliverables are, what their risk appetite is. That's huge from a security perspective. And then you actually, you know, every time you're in a situation, look at that toolbox, the metaphorical toolbox and go, um, is, is the tool that I have in there the right tool for this situation? And, and what I found, for example, is that uh, no, it wasn't the right tool, and I had to create all new tools, and and to some degree, that's even a growth opportunity, but it does, in consensus-based environments, you really have to sort of look very fresh in terms of you know, how you approach the problems, how do you sell new security initiatives, how do you communicate, you know, new risks and vulnerabilities that have been identified or new threats as well, and how do you actually engage leadership and your peers along those, and to some degree, that is different in every environment that I have been from nonprofit to academia to, you know, startup to the private industry. So you really got to just take a step back and 
uh, if anything, try to learn about the organization and what they do instead of just trying to reproduce what you did at your last organization. David, you bring up an interesting point. Myself, having spent a good amount of my career as an external consultant, having to take that approach pretty much in every engagement without accidentally stepping into a bad situation with a client because of making a bunch of bad assumptions. Uh, I, I completely understand uh, that cautionary uh, approach towards uh, developing a plan and obviously learning about the culture. What I'm curious though is when you're looking at uh, your toolbox per se, what have you found that has translated from your time at, let's say, publicly traded companies, you know, whether it's in the biotech space or in the technology space, that really did actually translate? If the 306090 didn't, was there an aspect that maybe hard lessons learned that you're like, I'm definitely not going to step into that going into the organization. So in terms of what not to use is, like I said, don't sort of immediately go into action. Um, what to do is one thing I really like is the 30, 60, 90 day learning plan. And this sort of says, here's who I plan to engage. Here's what I plan to learn and take that approach. But the the one thing that I, that I really did learn and in this situation that I'll describe that is applicable to pretty much any organization that I would be a part of going forward um, is... I came in and I very uh, quickly after a few weeks learned of a certain vulnerability that to me was probably one of one of sort of the the worst vulnerabilities I had seen in my career to date. It really was that significant. And then when I started talking to other people about this, I quickly realized that this quote-unquote vulnerability was very much built into existing processes and, and workflows. And, and this vulnerability was of such that I should have turned it off that very moment. But also what I realized is should I had it turned off at that very moment, the organization would cease to function. It would broken everything across the board. And, and what I had to learn how to do was two things. One is I had to build understanding and consensus across almost the whole organization in terms of, of a very big change we were going to make on how people worked. Um, and that's the soft skill side. And how do you actually communicate that to audiences that are either very technical or not technical or very skeptical. But the thing that I really sort of learned out of that, and, and this applied in most of new security implementations, is if you can, if you're not under an immediate threat, make sure that any functionality that you're taking away, that you're replacing with an equivalent functionality. IT can get the reputation of being the department of no and slow. And so you can't always seem like you're saying no. So you have to actually engage in a way where people understand the value of what you're trying to do. Uh, and we didn't close this particular vulnerability for about nine months. Oh, only I nine know. months. You're ahead of it. It's one of those things where, as you know, as a CISO, uh, you cannot mitigate every, every risk that you see. And you have to sort of come to peace with sleeping at night, knowing that you're mitigating what you can as, as quickly as you can. Now, on that front, though, the thoughts and the imagination of really the entire planet on this project, so no pressure, but on top of that, it's a $10 billion plus endeavor that's taken many, many years and is really, really public. When you're looking at making that risk calculation 
and you had mentioned that you have a consensus-driven decision-making process, which a lot of us, whether we want to admit it or not, work in that same scenario on the daily. What do you find that is the most, in the context of the Institute, that really gets everyone kind of nodding their heads saying, we get it, let's go ahead and take action. Obviously, in this scenario, to address this vulnerability that you and the team had identified, getting in the middle of it and shutting down operations, or which could potentially shut down operations, to be clear, uh, is, a, is an on-starter. But there might be others that are perhaps walking that line, but still have that potential downside of having significant impacts to the mission itself. Is there something you could share, kind of an example of what that would look like? Whether if it's not a vulnerability thing, maybe it's an operational thing. Yeah. So when I first got to Space Telescope, well, first let me say that there, when you go into a new organization or a new role, there are two things that have to be your number one priority. And that's to establish credibility and trust. If you don't have those, your uphill battle is going to be uh, even more difficult. But what, what I did initially, which is, I, it's funny, I don't even know if I would recommend this because you actually have to have a very willing audience. But when I got to these, there was a number of things that really needed to be addressed from mostly from like a performance infrastructure and even, uh, even some security issues that absolutely needed to be addressed for mission success that JWST would not have been able, we would not have been able to to uh, create the SOC and have a successful launch without these changes. So what I did is I, I sort of tested what the information appetite was for the leadership team. And, and I explained, I said, here, you know, here are several of the, the challenges uh, that we're looking for and just gave a quick high-level overview. Do you want to hear more about these? Do you want to hear some more detail? Because you know, technical briefings, you'll see a lot of people where their eyes will just sort of glaze over and then they really don't care. But I made that an option and an offer to them. And I knew that I was successful in this one instance. And so we had a migration problem in our network. And so I went to the leadership team and I said, is this something you want to learn about? And everybody on that and uh, that was sitting at that table had challenges and issues with bandwidth. So I said, okay. I said, sure. I said, well, let me explain to you uh, what the problem is and what we're going to do about it. And and so I drew this diagram where I sort of showed how traffic was kind of going from the inside, outside, in through the firewall, bouncing around, then going back out. And it was really, it was hairpinning all over the place. And, and I sort of explained that and I said, here's what we need to do to fix this. And here's where we need to make investments. And then at the next meeting where I had to do a follow-up, um, somebody who had not been at the first meeting uh, asked me if I could give a quick summary. And the CFO, um, he's a good sport, but he's also the, he, you know, he was the, a very self-proclaimed knight and non-techie. And I made the joke and I said, you know, hey, why don't you, do you want to go ahead and explain it for everybody? And I was teasing him basically. And we had a good relationship and he went up there and he went to a whiteboard and he drew the exact diagram that I had drawn the week before. He had understood it. He got it. Oh, wow. And of course, my jaw dropped. Um, but I knew that I had been successful in making this interesting enough, relevant enough to what they were doing, to the fact that they were paying attention. And even somebody that this is not a key area is, is something that they understood. So there's a lot of times is, you know, be open to 
taking deeper dives in other issues. But you really also have to make sure that you volunteer that. You can't really sort of force that. And there's sometimes when, you know, I'll have a meeting outside of the typical leadership or executive meetings where I'll do a half hour overview on a specific topic instead of taking up meeting time and make it voluntary for people to come in. And those are always very well attended. So it's it's be prepared and be open and also be surprised. People may be very willing and interested to, to learn about what you're trying to do and why it matters to them. I was uh, fully expecting for you to say, and that was the beginning of my performance improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's and that's in all seriousness. If I had started off, and again, this is very much true for CISOs. You know, if you go up in there and you start doing, you know, doom and gloom and trying to scare people, and you know, uh, trying to list all the risks that the organization is facing and why you need to have this, uh, you're, I, you're generally not going to be very successful. You know, as you know, security decisions are business decisions. They're not. They're not IT decisions. And you make a number of them by default because you've been trusted with your role and expertise. But you always have to be prepared to take those to leadership, to explain those to leadership, because in the end, how much they want to invest, how much risk they want to mitigate, what risks they're willing to assume going forward, those are all business decisions. And you gotta be you gotta be ready to to hear no's uh, as much as you're happy to hear yeses. Now, David, I'm incredibly curious regarding <clears throat> what does IT and security look like? And I know that there's a certain level that you can't speak to, but from a 10,000 foot level, how does it look from an IT organizational perspective, or at least from a uh, what you can share about systems that allow such a massive endeavor with, you know, the entire eyes of the world on you? It's one thing when you've got responsibility to your shareholders and whatnot, and that's critical. And it's another thing when you have responsibilities to stakeholders that are across the globe, because obviously it was a international effort. And on top of which you have the stress of academia and additional scientific endeavor that will come from this. What is an organization like yours that encompasses such a broad area of technical and scientific expertise. Mm-hmm. Could you give us an overview of what that looks like and and maybe how it differs a little bit uh, from your experiences at other large organizations? Yeah, I mean the first is just to to just re- reiterate another an old point is that you know, a lot of times when you make technical changes, you need to even sort of explain and prepare the academic side on this, even though they're not necessarily part of the decision-making process. But part of, I mean, one of the challenges that, that we have, first of all, Space Telescope is a very unique organization. I know most organizations will, will, will say that. But the one thing that we do that separates us from NASA, though they fund our work and separates us from, you know, other you know, organizations such as Raytheon or Northrop Grumman or separates us from a university is that the Institute blends engineering and science in a way that really nobody else does. And our customer per se is NASA. Obviously they're funding us, but our real customer is the worldwide astronomical community. 
And that's very different and in, ter- in terms of what we do. So, for example, if you want to get you know time on the Hubble or the James Webb, that NASA does not manage that process. We do. And we bring in people from all over the world you know, and different expertises. And it is literally the science community themselves that make the decisions on how these incredibly scarce and valuable resources are used. Dave, what does that mean to get time on the Hubble or the James Webb? Uh, in my mind, not having any context, I'm thinking timeshare, but I'm guessing it's far more complex. Yeah, all this stuff is complex. So, so we we own the scientific. I say we support the the scientific operations for the Hubble James Webb and the upcoming Roman Space Telescope, which we really haven't talked about yet. But it, it's I'll, I'll go through the process very quickly so you can sort of see how it works. You have an astronomer who has an idea, and they want to use the James Webb in order to do their research. The James Webb obviously is an incredibly complex operation. You know, you have to figure out where do you point it, what instrument do you use for how long, and and that that is a gross oversimplification. But and so we help them create their their proposals and the programming of the telescope to actually execute their science. And that's a very interactive process. Anyway, so we have an astronomer's proposal tool, and then that feeds into and we have a whole system for that. We have an exposure time calculation later that astronomers use to actually figure out how to point and actually use the, the spacecraft from a technical standpoint. And then we go into a process where, as I mentioned before, that we bring in people from all over the world. It's called the Telescope Allocation Committee. And they figure out, you know, who's going to get, quote unquote, time on on the James Webb or the Hubble. And and by time in Hubble, it's referred to as orbits, but it has to do on James Webb and others, you know, it's sort of length of observation um, and stuff. And so we go through this process where we actually get all the proposals and the ones that actually get um, approved. If you're in the United States and you get approved time, then you actually get grant funding to support that time in research. But then you have all of these proposals and all of this information on where to point the telescope for how long and what modes and, and everything to use. And then we have a team that actually goes, that actually takes that and has developed very complex software to simply optimize that schedule to minimize, you know, the number of moves and to maximize the time that the telescope is actually doing doing very productive research. So that goes through, and we have teams that actually work with the individual scientists throughout that whole process. And again, because it's, it's really new, I don't know about you, but I personally, even myself, have no idea how to program the James Webb. And so we do that. And then eventually the... Oh, you don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I'll just, I'll just say that now. Sheesh. And then we have... And then you're actually... Your observation and your work is actually transmitted from the James Webb to the Deep Space Network. And then we get it. And then we actually run it through a data management pipeline, which is a lot more complex than even that you might even imagine. And then, and, and then the astronomer has that at proprietary access in the Hubble. I believe it was one year. And I may get this wrong because I know that there was talk around this that the James Webb is for six months, and then it actually goes into the public domain. And so we manage that whole process and all the systems behind it and, and, and everything really from beginning to end. So all of these things being said, you've got mission responsibility for the systems that are directly enabling this. Does that include also aspects of this what you I think you called it a deep space network? Yeah, the deep space network, it's managed by NASA. I, I forget which 
contractor actually runs it. But it's a series of base stations around the world that work with, that essentially take the signals from outer space on different bands and then bring it into the to the rest of the network. And eventually these images in, our, in a future mission will land in AWS. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. So a lot of this stuff is going right into the cloud. That's where things are, are really going. And if you ask me, what are my biggest challenges, you know, on a project like this. The first is, and this does answer your question, I think you're, give additional answers to your previous question, is that there, there's just partnerships. The James Webb and Hubble telescopes are partnerships between the Canadian Space Agency, NASA, and the European Space Agency. And, and then we also have contractors like Raytheon and, and others, probably about five if I recall. Uh, and it's managing all of these partnerships and relationships throughout this uh, whole process. And, and that actually works quite well. That's a layer of complexity that actually works better than, than you may think. But the real challenge is data, data, data. Uh, we're expected, I think by the end of this decade, that we'll have about 85 petabytes of data in the cloud and still about 21 petabytes on-prem. And one of the biggest challenges on that, I remember when I first got here, there, there was a question that the data volumes were getting so large that we had to make a choice. We either had to, because you couldn't move the data to the scientist, it was just too big. You know, you can't, scientists can't download a five petabyte data set. So we had to make a decision. Do we actually offer compute services, you know, to the world for the data that we had here on-prem? Or do we find a way to move the data to the, to the scientist? And that just turned out to be obviously prohibitive after a certain point. And so we had to. We got to a point where, and this is where we're at now, where we're leveraging, in our case, AWS to actually host the data, and then provide compute, so that you know, from a, a latency standpoint, it's pretty minimal, and that the, the compute, quote unquote, is right next to the data. And then this is where IT really works with the organization and, and really kind of takes a strategic approach. On this is. Not only do we sort of provide access to the data, that's part of what we do, but we're also creating structured compute environments. I don't know if you're familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, for example, and where we build in analysis tools that are specifically designed to work on this type of data that comes out of Hubble or James Webb and other higher level data products. So you see this convergence of all these different aspects that come together. That means that the scientist who really just wants to get to their research, you know, we're really trying to simplify their ability to access capabilities that are almost seem limitless in the cloud in terms of getting them to science as quickly as possible with capabilities that they never dreamed of before. And this is one of the, I think, one of the most exciting things that's going forward, but it's a challenge. And, you know, big data, I think, is a bit over overused at this point. There's lots of big data, but how do you actually move this forward in a way where people can take advantage of it in unprecedented ways? Dave, you mentioned earlier that, uh, there's a period of time after a researcher has had their time with the telescope and they've obtained an initial set of data. And I, I thought I heard you say that there's a period of time where that data is solely for their use. I think you said it was about six months or so. And then effectively it's opened up to the rest of the research yep. community. Is my understanding correct? That is correct. <laughs> so in, in situations like that, and when you're dealing with massive data sets and, and I, I don't know this, but I'm asking, is this a combination of unstructured data in the form of, let's say, 
these massive high resolution images that are coming back. For example, the ones that we just saw just last week, actually, some of these beautiful images that are coming back from the telescope. Is it a combination of that or is it also a, a ton of telemetry data that is coming back from the the telescope itself? So, yes, the answer to that question is it's kind of a bit of all the above. In terms of the data that comes down, there's there's different types of data that the telescopes will collect. Obviously, you have image data, but there's also data that comes down that actually tells you what what stars are made of. A star that may be shining light through the atmosphere of an exoplanet, that there are scientific techniques that can literally tell you what elements are in that atmosphere. So you get that data and there's others. And it's it's really, it's, it's, it's all the above. Another way to look at it has to do with, uh, what we call them data levels, level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. And, and it's terms of, you know, processing and, and scientific utility. And then we actually even take that and do higher level science data products. And so one of the things that the Institute does very well is make a fuller range of information and based upon these images available to the community. And, and and one question that you hadn't asked, but I'll sort of um, lead into that, is what happens after the six-month or one-year period, is that it then goes into an archive. And Hubble very quickly surpassed in the last decade where there was more research being done on existing archive data than there is actually on new observations. And, and so this is where when we were talking before about large, you know, large data sets in, in the cloud and having approximate compute is just a, a huge opportunity and growth area in astronomy. David, when I was looking at your bio, one of the things that really stuck out to me and in discussion with some of my colleagues here at Zscaler was this guy could go anywhere in the world with your background across technology, biotech, I mean, it's pretty much a not only a who's who of companies and experiences, but also within the academic realm as well. When you were considering joining the Institute, what were the things that really drove you towards it and made you say, yeah, this is, I'm about this. I want to take on this challenge because the first reaction that a lot of folks might have when looking at the immensity of the project, the visibility of the project, the importance of it from a scientific endeavor standpoint might be thanks, but no thanks. Maybe someone else might take that challenge on. What drove you to that? And what was what were you thinking when you said, all right, let's go. I'll make this a success. The, so the first part, kind of answering the last part of your question, I'll, I'll be very candid. There were, in the first few years, there were so many times that I would be walking down the hallway and I would just stop and I'd be like, do not screw this up. You know, and, and you just sort of realize the, the the magnitude of the responsibility that you have. And every once in a while, it would stop me dead in my tracks. But the thing that's, that brought me to the Institute is I was actually working in another organization. I was quite happy there. And there was this trainer that I'd worked with said, hey, do you have an updated version of your resume? And I said, well, I don't, but I'll get you one tomorrow. And I sent it over. And then I get a call. I get a call from a recruiter from Space Telescope. Like most people out there, you're familiar with the Hubble and now people are familiar with the James Webb, and obviously everybody knows NASA, but you know the Space Telescope Science Institute isn't a household name. 
Um, so I didn't know much about it, and it was a uh, it was a you know two two and a half hour drive from where I lived, and I didn't I liked where I lived and plan. But uh, advice that I would give, and this will seem obvious to most, but if it's not, if you ever get the opportunity to interview, no matter what the organization is, take it. And the, and the reason is that interviewing is a skill, just like anything else, and and you never know what you'll run into. And when I was looking at Space Telescope, organizations come in all all sizes and types, and, and they're all valid, and they all, they're sized appropriately for what they do. Um, I was currently, my, my last two organizations were in the five to 8,000 people size and, and won a couple billion dollars in revenue. And and the, the Institute was much, much smaller. And and so we were looking, you know, the, 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 it was maybe five to 10% the size. And, and, and so my, my scope of responsibility would have been smaller. My staff would have been smaller. And, and so I was very, I was, um, again, always going with an open mind and I did. And so I go on the interview and what I, this is something that is very rare and is something you don't see. And when you see it, grab it. And I was sitting at a table, it was an eight, eight hour interview with two different panels. And what I saw was these were people that just had passion in what they do. They weren't doing it for the money. They were doing it because they were doing something that was historic. And and there was an energy and an, an intelligence and a human side. And it was just it was a group of people that had just had an energy and had a passion that I had just simply not seen. And that was in, in the technical interview. And when, and I remember halfway through the day and I'm like, holy cow, I'm like, this is pretty awesome. I don't think many people out there realize what this organization does and their role in the Hubble and upcoming James Webb. And so, and then in the second half of the interview was, uh, a, a more of a, a management leadership interview. And this one's a little more nebulous, but I'll just try to sum it up very quickly where I really got a, a sense of humanity in that every organization will tell you that people are their most valuable asset. And a lot of times that can just be lip service, but here it actually was very real and people really saw and felt it that way. And then I think the thing that really sold me in the end was in the last, in the last interview, it got to the point where we were making jokes on both sides and humor is absolutely essential to me and and showed me that they were they were as human as i hoped and and at the end i was like wow like this is very different than the career path that i had in mind but this organization is truly special and in terms of the people and the work that they do that i walked out of there not expecting not expecting at all um, to be interested or take the position and just absolutely hoping that I would be selected. You mentioned earlier the importance of having flexibility with your toolbox and knowing what's in the box to begin with. I imagine that throughout the years of leading the organization, you've probably picked up a handful of new tools that perhaps you didn't have or maybe even honed some of the ones that you have. What goes into that process? And I know that it's not necessarily a conscious thing. It just kind of happens sometimes. Uh, yeah. So what I, what I did is my decision-making process and thinking became very intentional. And, and I, I'm sure this may exist otherwhere, but I developed my own decision-making spectrum that goes from unanimous consent to consensus to consultative to directive. 
And consultative is where you have a defined decision maker and they're responsible for factoring in all of the, the stakeholder feedback, but they actually ultimately get to make the decision. So it's, it's consultative, but with a clear decision maker. Directive is just, as you see, you know, one person makes a decision. And what I realized was that I, every time that I had a decision, I actually then would actually ask myself very explicitly, where does this decision fall? Can I just make this as directive or do I have to, and I really kind of formalized the consultative part of the decision making, and then, you know, which ones could be done via consensus. And I've created this process and it's still very early. It's, it's not quite pilot. It's actually starting to gain traction, but I created a request for feedback process in engineering where when we're looking to adopt a new tool, a new process, a strategy, we actually open that up to the entire engineering staff and the whole organization where they can comment on it and give their input before we finalize it. You know, it's not that different from how the internet, you know, works, you know, in terms of RFCs. And I would have never created that process if I didn't have to figure out, wait, how do we make better decisions? How do we make more well-communicated decisions? How do we get better feedback and yet not slow us down? And and it's starting to get embraced. And when we do have one of these requests for feedbacks out there, the participation has just been great. And and every everything we do in terms of these major decisions that that shouldn't be made directive or otherwise, the conversations that I that I have with teams and staff and engineers and and everybody is just so incredibly warm, rewarding. And in the end, the decisions are just better. David, I know that this is probably a premature question to ask. And I also know, as you had said, you stay within the areas of expertise that you have, but you've probably gleaned some new insights about what we understand regarding the universe and what it really means in the context. Has, has there been anything in the context of we as humans on this floating rock, has there been anything yet that has made you go, oh, I thought this was totally different. And it might be a little early because, you know, it, it just launched not that long ago. But something that maybe is teasing that there might be a better understanding in the coming years about the way that the universe works or your insight. Yeah, there's two there's two ways to answer that question. So the first I'll talk about, there's something called the Hubble Deep Field. And the director of the Institute, the CEO, the director of the Institute gets a, I mentioned before, the Telescope Allocation Committee, which determines who gets time on the Hubble and, and, and now James Webb. The director has a certain amount of discretionary time. And in 1995, the director at the time took all of his time and and applied it to one thing. And there was a patch in the sky about the size of a dime at arm's length that was completely devoid of anything. It was it was completely completely black. And he took the Hubble and for 10 consecutive days, that's a lot of time. Okay, that's 100 a typical exposure is a couple hours, but he took 100 hours in over 10 days and focused it at this one spot. And if you think about it, um, you know, think of it as a, a rain bucket. And when you're only getting getting a, a drop or two of light at a time, eventually, eventually, if you wait long enough, uh, the the bucket will fill up. And what happened when when they did that is in that completely empty patch of skies sky, there were three thousand galaxies. 
that they find. And, and the estimate is, you know, like 100 million stars or something. It's that's not quite a settled number, but you know, 100 million stars, you know, per galaxy. And what it it really sort of it gave us one of the best real understandings is just how much is in the universe, how many galaxies there are, and the current estimate I believe is about two trillion. And so for me, it, you know, well for astronomy and I think for everybody else, but when I learned this, it was it just sort of blew my mind that what we see when we look up in the sky is is a tiny tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the universe. And there's so much more beyond what you can see there. And then to take that and extrapolate it a little better in terms of the James Webb, that same approach that took 10 days and 100 hours, I, I think that the James Webb pulled it off in an afternoon. It, you know, it's, it can collect more light and there's, wow. there's other, and it actually looked out further. But the telescopes are a bit like time machines. And so when you have, let's say you have a star that is 13 billion light years away from Earth, that light leaves that, that star 13 billion years ago and then travels to the Earth. When, it gets, when that light gets to the Earth, we're not seeing that star as it is. We're seeing it as it was. And so as you look, if you're on the Earth, and as you look further and further and further out, what you're seeing is the universe as it was more and more and more. And the current estimate is that the James Webb will be able to look back so far in time for a universe that's estimated to believe about to be about 13.8 billion years, that it'll be able to look at to just 400 million years after the Big Bang. And and so early galaxy formation and you know and not that they're planning on doing this but this is kind of how I visualize it is that you do that process in reverse and you look very far away then you look closer and closer and you can almost see the universe form. It's unprecedented and and one of the reasons why the James Webb can do that is because light when it's traveling through the universe it's something called redshift. Since the universe is expanding, if you think of light as a wave traveling through an expanding universe, that wave gets stretched. And so the light gets essentially stretched from visible light to infrared. And infrared is not something you can really do very well from the surface of the Earth. And then there's whole issues about temperature that also fact into that. So the, the, the James Webb is optimized for the infrared spectrum. And it's so sensitive that if it were, you know, I always love this stat, that if the James Webb were on the, on the surface of the Earth, it would be able to detect the heat of a bumblebee on the moon. It is just that sensitive. So we'll just be able to see farther than we ever have in history. So at what point does this become an existential crisis? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sitting here going, okay, I, you know, uh, well, this, our place in the universe yeah. has always been fairly well understood, but obviously not as well understood as we had all thought. Well, and this is something that we discovered with Hubble is that there are stated mission objectives for JWST, but <laughs> what we learned with Hubble is the best things are the questions we haven't even thought to ask yet. So if any listeners are actually find that last part interesting, and I won't go into it, is two things that I would suggest they look at. The first is that we can do some searches on YouTube. There's some really good videos on that. The first is the Drake equation, which sort of is an estimate on how many habitable planets there are in the universe. And then the Fermi paradox, which I love because if if there are so many stars in the universe and most of those stars have planets and and there's there, the number of habitable worlds in the universe is literally astronomical. 
then why aren't we tripping over aliens every day? And, and so the Fermi paradox is a really good explanation of that. David, thank you for making the time and providing your insight and expertise and sharing with us not only your journey to lead the mission from a technology and engineering standpoint at the Telescope Institute and for the James Webb Project, but also giving us some very practical leadership advisement in terms of how we as security leaders and technology leaders can think about what it is that we do every single day. David Liska, thank you again for all of your time and all of your insights. And I hope that you join us again here in the future. and We can use more terms that go completely over my head that I have to Google in the middle <laughs> of the interview. Yeah, it would be my pleasure to return. Thank you. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.